Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Coach Speak. I'm Matt Seidel, along with co-host Derek Seidel. Our third man, Josh Trope, is on vacation. This episode is brought to you by Monroe Sports Varsity Athletic, a quick turnaround, high-quality business for more than 30 years. Contact Randy or Kim Winham at 734-652-0720 for a great deal in your next purchase of sporting apparel. Today's guest is Charlie Ernst, the head men's basketball coach at the University of Finley. Ernst is entering his 11th season as the Oilers head coach and also served as an assistant there for 19 years under Ron Niekamp. Finley won an NCAA Division II National Championship in 2009, going 36-0, and has won multiple GMAC and GLIAC titles since Ernst took over in 2011. Today, Coach Ernst talks to us about teaching and measuring the concept of sharing the basketball, the use of multiple defenses, including his 1-1-3 zone, and a unique approach to baseline out-of-bounds defense. Also during our shot clock segment, he explains that he has no regrets about turning down a Division I opportunity years ago. So without further ado, here is Coach Charlie Ernst. Coach Ernst, before we uh, delve into some of the finer points of University of Finley basketball, we just want to welcome you to the pod and thank you for uh, squeezing us into your busy summer schedule. No, no, my pleasure. Uh, anytime, you know, I can talk about basketball and share the things that I've learned, you know, especially uh, with, with probably a lot of coaches that are somewhat uh, close to Finley, I think that's always a good thing. Yeah. You know, we're going to jump right into it. You know, based on conversations that, that, that we've had with people, including yourself and even some of our video study, your, your style, one thing that you guys do that seems synonymous with Finley basketball is your, your ability and, I guess, and willingness to share the basketball. And uh, it, it seems to be a little bit more than lip service and an occasional extra pass for you guys. And, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because, you know, I, we're all guilty of it. We all want to think our teams – share the ball or we want them to share the ball and we, we ask them to share the ball we ask them to communicate too and but we don't always teach them to communicate and I think sharing the ball is kind of right along those same lines it's a hard concept to teach it's easy to point out it's easy to say but it's hard to do I mean again watching you guys play there's no doubt you guys make the extra pass you're really trying to play the right way and you've got guys in the court uh doing that for you but we're really kind of interested I guess to start what are the building blocks to getting a program where you've got a bunch of guys that are willing and able to do that and do it well? Well, I guess I have to preface everything I say with uh, a few things I think that are important and lay the groundwork for that. I think number one, you know, we have the ability, unlike a lot of high school coaches, of recruiting guys that we feel have been very well prepared uh, to do that and to play that style. And that's a credit to all the high school coaches of the many, many players that, that I've coached or we've coached at Finley. Uh, this is my 30th year, start of my 30th year at Finley. You know, I was an assistant here for 19 years. So, so when I say we, truly it's we, and certainly on the offensive end, it's we, because my top assistant, since I've been the head coach, uh, is a man named Dan Shardo, and Dan was is in now in his, I think, 15th or 16th season in our program. And, you know, one of the things we did when I was the top assistant is we delegated similarly to football, 
at a time when very few programs were doing that, meaning offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and truly the football model, not, not just call a few plays during games or maybe just calling out of bounds plays, but truly coaching the offensive end of the floor, practice preparation, designing what the practice plan will be day to day, actually heading that portion of practice up, obviously calling the plays on game days, you know, all of those things. And then their, their time away from practice, they're mostly just watching Finley on offense, you know? And so I think it's important to put credit where credit is due. And Dan is our offensive coach. And, but I think that continuity in our staff has created a culture of giving that I think goes above and beyond guys graduate each year, new guys come in, but the system is the same because the faces in charge are still the same. So I think those are two important factors, recruiting guys that like to play that way, that come from programs that play that way, and then having a culture that we've developed and and been fine tuning, I'd like to say for years. So, you know, I think there's certain things that that I feel like we do very well uh, here. You know, a lot of our drills, you know, without going into a lot of detail, an interesting thing that I feel like we do, I'm a defensive minded guy, always have been. Like most programs, we do a lot of disadvantage drills defensively, right. you know, three on four drills, four on five drills, you know, where you want to get your defense into a bit of a scramble, you know, and get guys to recognize one or two passes ahead where the next pass is going, constantly on your, your heels ready to rotate, anticipating when a guy drives baseline, what his options really are and rotating accordingly. But what we've done is we've taken that same mentality and we've carried it over to offense. So we do a lot of disadvantage drills offensively where the offense has the advantage. And you would be amazed at how well that creates sharing the ball. It really gets the ball moving. You know, because you, you, you sort of see it when you run those same drills defensively that the offense sort of figures out we've got to get the defense moving, you know, and the quicker, the more we can get them in rotation, the better shot we're going to get. So we do disadvantage drills on offense every day. And, and then sometimes we have rules as part of those drills and we design them in different ways, meaning sometimes we'll start the ball at half court. Sometimes we'll We'll play it more cutthroat style where, you know, it's like 10 minutes straight and there's, you know, maybe the, you get a stop, you throw it out to a a coach out at half court. Someone's got to step behind the three point line. We're kicking it in a new defense is coming on. And so there's quick thinking, but it's always at a disadvantage. So it's always the ball's moving. Players are moving. They're looking for an extra pass because when guys are taking contested shots in disadvantage drills, (laughs) That's like a turnover, even if the ball goes in. And I think our players start to really figure out when the ball moves quickly, the the level and quality of shots that you can get goes way up. Gotcha, no doubt. Coach, I'm curious. You talked about recruiting kids that play in that style. And it sounds like you guys have a really good culture in place now. Do you feel that since you've got that established, you're able to take, take a chance on a kid that, that maybe 
you know, is more talented, but doesn't quite fit in with the, the share in the ball type stuff. Maybe he's really ball centric in high school, or do you still avoid those kind of guys? Uh, no, I, I think that's a, you know, we're, this is August. So those decisions are actually right there on the forefront of our minds as we speak. And it's funny you bring that up because we have that discussion about certain talented players that will say, I, I really think in our culture, he'll buy in. You know, I, I think that we can get him because, you know, the reality, you guys have coached high school basketball and you know what I'm talking about. At bigger high schools where there's maybe more good players, you naturally give a little more. You maybe don't average as many points. You're not looked on to, to score every time you touch the ball. Sometimes at smaller high schools, they're not successful if the best player doesn't get at least 10 shots a game because they have too many guys that struggle to score the ball consistently. So I find that sometimes with smaller schools, maybe their, their character is more intact, but they've had to play a style where they're used to making and taking shots, even sometimes bad ones, because that's what they need from you know, that's what the coach needs from them. You know, I, I think sometimes we see that, you know, and sometimes it's a little tougher to get guys to buy into that. But I'd say by and large, you know, that that typically happens at some point while they're here. They buy in. So, you know, you talked about the uh, the advantage and disadvantage drills, which is it's an interesting mindset. I mean, I think we all use them, maybe not as often as you say uh, that you guys use them, but it makes you think that maybe we should be. And then to create you know, some unselfishness and some ability to move the ball quicker in that, in that frame is, is, is uh, really intriguing. Along those same lines, um, I, I assume your, your offensive design, uh, you guys aren't just in like an ISO team. If you're going to have a, a team that shares the ball, but you're just going to run ISO all the time, it doesn't make sense. So in, in terms of your, your offensive system, uh, man zone, whatever, um, pretty consistent with, with that whole mantra. And, and, and also, could you describe a little bit, I guess, kind of some of the, the basics of your offensive structure? Yeah, you know, we're mostly a four out, uh, one in team, but with interchangeable parts. We're not a heavy ball screen offensive team. I would say, uh, not to say we don't set ball screens, but I wouldn't sit, call us a heavy ball screen team. There have been occasions and games where we we have been but it's been because we've either felt like we had an advantage there or maybe we were trying to put the other team's best player maybe a big kid in ball screen defensive situations consistently to try to wear them down a little bit and so there's different reasons but I would say that by and large it might be 20 percent of our offensive package I would say the, the rest of it would be, uh, I would des uh, describe our four out as maybe more cutting and less screening. You know, some four outs are more screening and less cutting. We are probably more cutting and less screening. We do set screens and I think it's, it's something we can do effectively, especially when we run some sets that do involve a fair amount of screening. We have traditionally recruited some bigs that have some versatility. So they're, they're maybe not Princeton offensive <laughs> high post players where they're point post types, but they all have an ability to pass the ball, you know? So we're very comfortable running elbow actions just off the elbow to a post player who maybe 
quarterback mentality in football maybe looks for a fake or a dribble handoff to a to a guard or maybe inside pivot face up maybe they've got some opportunities in the three-point shooting game if they don't they can go you know maybe the point guard after he entered it maybe cuts over top he's got the option if he fakes that now we've got a two-man game either a back cut by the wing if you were mindset of almost five out at this point right and if the if the wing back cuts, the point guard can come back. But the five man, four or five's got to have an ability to pass the ball and make decisions like a guard would. So we'll we'll mix in those sort of actions with our four out, with our different ball screen actions. I think that would probably. I mean, those aren't all of our sets. We run a fair amount of sets, but they'll take on that sort of look, you know, and I think we run some of those very well because of the versatility of our players. A couple statistical things that I thought you might find interesting and some of your listeners might find interesting that we picked up on and kind of used as our own. And hopefully someone can do the same here listening to this. But, and again, this is a college basketball number. Coaches could maybe see how that would translate to, say, a 32-minute high school game. But in a 40-minute college game, our goal is to pass the ball 275 times in one game. That's our goal. And and that that includes outlet passes. Our high last year is we had 281 passes in one game that didn't include outlet passes. So... Let's say on a made field goal and you kick it ahead, like let's say it's, you know, you don't hand the ball off to a point guard, although that would count, that's a pass. Right. But even one where you zip the ball, you know, the four man takes it out of the net and maybe gets it to the point guard who's on the run. I mean, yeah, that, that probably should truly count as a pass. But if you counted all of those, I think if, if you threw pass the ball 275 times in one game in a college basketball game, you would get what you're describing right there with moving the ball. Right. That's a good number. We stole that number from Pat Kelsey when he was at Winthrop. He used 250 as his target number with his program. We cranked it up a little bit and that's our goal number. And so we break that down after every game Sometimes in those double header games, you know, Thursday, Saturday, you know, it's not something we're going to do before the Saturday game, but typically we'll break those down and see where we're at and share that with our players to kind of give them just to give them an idea. You know what? We have had these preseason scrimmages, guys, we're at 220 to 230. We're not sharing the ball and consequently we're not getting the quality of shots. We're not getting to the free throw line. You know, we're not getting offensive rebounds because we're not breaking down the defense. You know, there's all these other things that you can share. But oftentimes, if you can achieve that pass number, then you'll get all those other things I just mentioned more frequently. And, uh, and, and I think the other goal number that we shoot for is 20 assists per game. Obviously, you have to have guys that can make shots to get that. And the other thing Dan and I talk about is, you know, you got to play reasonably fast you know we're not Loyola Marymount maybe I'm I'm aging myself there with that oh I, I I'm with you on that Come okay on. good uh <laughs> Derek probably thinking I don't even know Loyola Marymount that doesn't mean much to me but a little before my time but I'm, I'm aware of him the point is if you play slow you'll never get to 20 assists I mean no matter how good you are 
but you don't have to race it up and down the floor either. You know, it's just got to be a good solid flow in 20 assists. If you had 20 assists per game in college basketball at our level, you're probably going to be in the top five, certainly the top 10 in the country. And we're not always there, but that's our goal. But I think the 275 passes helps you get to that 20 number. You know, so there's some things that we share with our players. You know, you can go overboard with the stats, you know, and I think that's always the thing we always talk about as a staff. We have our retreat coming up as a coaching staff where we'll talk about some of these things is for this team, what are going to be the important stats? And, you know, I, I think we will change from year to year based on strengths and weaknesses, but that will never change that 275. That's a staple of our program. Players come and go, but that will always be a, a staple of our program. I'm, I'm not a math major like Derek. I'm not a math teacher, but I think that prorates to 220 at the high school game. So that my student assistant, he just just got a new job next year. Let's <laughs> see see what we come see what kind of number he comes up with. But uh, that, that's yeah, that's really interesting. I've never heard that. Uh, I'm with all the NBA analytics, they got they got numbers for everything now. But I, I don't know if I've heard of I've heard of dribbles. You know they. They count dribbles per game and how many guys uh, points guys score off certain amount of dribbles. But I, I like the team passing uh, concept. So that's great. Coach, Here, do you guys, do you guys ever um, apply that defensively as well? Like, do you try and limit passes or I, we obviously haven't talked about your defensive strategy much. We're focusing on offense, but and that was something else that popped into my head. And you're talking like that correlates to getting better shots. Do you guys look at it the other way around? I know that would be a lot more tracking on the other end as yeah. well, but. You know, it's, it's interesting you ask that question because we've thought about that. But, you know, quite, quite honestly, a lot of the teams we play, you know, if we played more Hillsdales, you know, Hillsdale moves the ball, they share the ball, they run great motion offense. You know, I always say when you play a Hillsdale, you want to make them dribble the ball as much as you can. You know, so there's a case of less passing is better. Right. But I would say that by and large, most of the teams we play, not to sell, say they play selfish basketball, but I'm not sure that, that that's in, as important for our scheme that we eliminate the number of passes they throw. And I think it, it, it's certainly something to consider when you play a Hillsdale, but we don't play enough of those teams to make that uh, maybe something that we, we focus on too much. No doubt. That makes sense. Well, hey, speaking of defense, I want to kind of shift uh, shift gears. By the way, we, uh, we we both saw the end of your Hillsdale game last year. Um, I think was that game at Hillsdale or at, that was at Finley? Was that Finley? There's a half court shot, half court shot to win oh, it. That was, yeah. <laughs> holy cow! The, the the phantom foul before the half court shot. I think it was a phantom foul, but you know maybe I was looking at it through a Finley lens. But anyway, that, yeah, that was a ball don't lie situation. I'd say. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Uh, anyway, moving on to your defense. I mean, you guys, sounds like you play, you're mostly a man-to-man team based on observation, again, in conversation with you. But um, what else do you, you know, when you go to battle, when you guys go to compete, what else do you feel as a coach at Finley that you need to have in your arsenal? Um, because I, I believe you guys play some multiple defense. So I'm p- curious of what, what you think are those key tools you have to have. Yeah, I, I'm a, the older I've gotten, you know, when I was a younger coach, you know, I was a firm believer that, you know, we're going to be a hard-nosed man-to-man defensive team, and we're going to just play that 99% of the time. Some of it was my stubbornness, I think, 
in my belief, because I, I played high school basketball for a coach that was a diehard man-to-man sort of a guy. Uh, and then when I played, I actually played here at Finley for four years. The, the coach that handled defense back then was a diehard man-to-man defensive coach. And he, and he coached it really well. You know, and like anything, you know, you, you coach what you know the best. And that's what he did. So yeah, that was ingrained in me. And so maybe as a young coach, that's where I was at as a, as a coach. But as I got older, I realized, you know, that there's a lot of really good offensive players out there and a lot of really good offensive coaches. And sometimes it only takes a two or three minute segment of the game to get a team out of their rhythm. And then when you go back to man-to-man, they're not the same team as they were before. And I think it also helps dictate lineups by your opponent. Yeah, you know, there's, there's some players that just don't function as well against zones. But, but I think for me, the challenge as a coach was twofold. Number one, and this might be true, and I think your coaches that listen can relate to this. Number one, I've got to learn how to be able to coach zone defenses because we're not just going to be a team that I, I put the, the chess pieces out on the floor and, and okay, now we're two guys up top. We got three guys down low. Okay. Let's roll the ball out and let's start doing it. You know, I, I wanted to have some rules. And then number two, I wanted all of the time that we spend on defensive drill work to carry over so that our players, we don't have to have separate drills to coach our zone. What zones can we play where the man-to-man defensive breakdown drills that we do every day or every other day that we instill mentally and physically in our players can be used on the zone, man or zone. And I think once we kind of figured that out, I was more comfortable playing more zone. And now I would say, as you mentioned, we're still predominantly a man-to-man team, but there have been games where we have played half the game in zone and part of it's my comfort. And number two, we're a lot better at it. You know, we're getting more effective at it. I would say we're still practicing our man to man. The first three weeks of practice, we're, we're doing nothing but man to man. Well, I shouldn't say three, the first two weeks of practice, because we want all of our players to understand that's the core of our defense. And then as we segue and start to introduce our zones, and I'll mention those here briefly, now it's about every other day we work on one of our zones, you know, so that we're prepared when we play them. And uh, we have a little bit of an idea on our rules and what we hope to accomplish in them. We play a couple different zones. We play a tandem, uh, so it looks more like a 1-1-3 zone. So we pick up the ball, just like you would man-to-man. We pressure the ball on the wing, so it's not a pack-you-in type of 2-3 or even a pack-in 1-1-3. Our wings always, our bottom wings always cover the first pass, sort of like a 1-3-1, you know, and they will come way out. Now, maybe not to 40 feet but they'll come out two steps beyond the three-point line to guard the ball if they need to. We're, we're looking to protect the paint with our guards at that point. You know, We will play some 1-3-1, which is a great complementary defense to our 1-1-3. And, and you know, I, I find it interesting all the time now. Andy might, you know, Andy's usually pretty well prepared. Uh, they've done a pretty good job against them, but 
a lot of coaches, especially some of our non-conference games, when we're in our one-one-three, we play our one-three-one enough that I'll hear the other coach yelling, they're in a one-three-one. And we're not in a one-three-one. Our rules are different, but it looks like it. And you know, I think that it sometimes can confuse the other coach. And usually when I feel like they're in a, a little confused, that's when we will, we will use them more. Um, and then we also finally have a defense where we start in our one, three, one, and we transfer that into a two, into our two, three during the possession. And, you know, so, so those are the three main defenses. We will have pressing some years more than others. We don't press maybe quite as much as say Ferris State. I'm using Ferris mostly here because right. I know that you've had Andy on your show and he does a great job. They have a very good program, you know, but they probably full court press, you know, more than we do. Uh, we're mostly going to, when, when you say multiple defenses, it would be those different zones combined with our man-to-man. -man. You guys just randomly go to these zones at times when it instinctively you feel it's time or you want that, you want to dictate a lineup or change the pace of the game, or are you, are you in something after this and in something after that? It's, I mean, how do you guys kind of mesh those zones into your system or your game? Yeah. I think it's watching film, knowing their personnel and what they like to do offensively what we do best defensively, what we don't do well defensively, mm -hmm. and sometimes just a feel as a coach. There have been games when I've come right out opening tip and we're in a 1-3-1. And uh, I show it to them early in the game because I'm just curious How they're gonna handle it. what it'll look like, you know. And I find myself I'm more apt to try it early in the game when the score is zero to zero <laughs> – as opposed to going to it when we're down 20 to 13, you know, but, you know, sometimes I want to set the stage in a different way. Um, so I, I think to answer your question, there's a lot of different reasons we go to it and, and a lot of different scenarios. I think probably more than anything, it's, it's, I, I think another thing I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, Matt, and I, and I think it's, it's something I've said at clinics before. So we have all of these defenses, usually about once a week or maybe once every other week. We will play five possessions, side out, 22 seconds left in the game, tie game, okay? And we'll have a first group and a second group. I'm not coaching, okay? Coach Shardo can coach the offense, mm. but there'll be no defensive coach. There's 20 seconds for the team to huddle up. That gives Coach Shardo 20 seconds to work with who's ever on offense. And we will alternate possessions. And I will let the defense choose their defense. And they can choose anyone they want. And I pay very close attention to what's happening on the floor. And I say that for this reason. If the game's on the line, I know what our players are confident playing and what they're not confident playing. I'm not the one on the floor. Now, some of that could be dictated based on the effectiveness of that game and what's happening. But I can tell you that 99% of the time over the last 10 years, I've gotten a great feel from our team on what they're comfortable and confident in playing when the game's on the line. It's always an interesting little thing, but we get work. We get work in those. And sometimes I'll, I'll make them. 
if I don't feel like they're playing one of those defenses, I'll tell the teams one of these five possessions has right. to be a one through one. That's interesting. I'm just curious, coach, with the tandem defense, you know, you said you, you, you like to pressure the ball and deny the wings a little bit. I'm just curious how that, how that rotates as they get the ball across. I know you said you maybe even want to take away that first pass, but if they were to get the ball up to the wing, how do you rotate out of that? Cause I know it, does it slide back to traditional two, three or, and how do those guards know where to go? Yeah. Um, if I said we deny that, I didn't mean we deny it. We pressure it. Okay. So we don't deny that, but we do hard pressure it. Now I think the really what it comes down to more than anything else, since we're going to slide back the ball side guard. So now not the guy that was guarding the ball. Okay. Let's say the, the, the their point guard brings the ball across half court. He's being guarded by the top of our tandem guards, when that pass entry pass is made, he will go backside elbow, okay? Balls, so now the bottom of our two guards will cover the ball side elbow. The biggest decision at this point, and again, I think this depends on the athleticism and your comfort in your center, because do you wanna do, if the ball goes to the corner, so the next pass goes from wing to corner. Do you want to execute a long slide, a middle slide, or a short slide? Okay, meaning, how, how should I describe this? So the, the entry's made. Let's assume the ball's passed to the corner. Who's going to cover the corner? Let's assume your center leaves the paint. They should be a, above the block or out just outside the block, depending on where the offensive players are at, when the ball's on the wing anyhow. So maybe the ball's in the air, it goes to the corner. Now maybe your big goes out to guard the ball in the corner. A lot of teams will put a shooter in that spot. They'll see, like a 1-3-1, they'll see that maybe you're vulnerable there. Now does that wing, where does that wing go? Does he bump? Does he run to the corner and bump the big back to the block? That's an option. Does he execute a short slide, which means he's going to just replace the big? So the other bottom guy in the zone is going to come across until the wing now occupies that ball side block and we just sort of bump everyone back over. Or he could execute a long slide, which means he could all actually run all the way to the backside block. And now your, your bottom of your zone has literally totally rotated all three spots, if that makes sense. Yeah. We've done all three, okay? Now... The key is the angle in which you guard the ball on the wing. If you guard the ball on the wing, but to basket, you really can't contest or slice that pass to the corner. And, it, and on a bing, bing pass, a good shooter will have his feet set and his shoulders squared that he'll have the ball out of his hands before your big even gets there. So the angle of pressuring the wing is one where you know, you're not necessarily in a one-three-one position where your butt's to the baseline, but you've got what we call, you know, a slice hand, you know, posture. Because again, our guards, our top guards are protecting the paint. So we're, we've got protection there. We're actually a little more vulnerable in the corner initially, if that makes sense. I, I don't know if I described yeah. that. No, that yeah. does. You just don't want a direct pass. You're trying to avoid any type of direct, right? If you can exactly. get them exactly. to lob it or bounce pass, you you got what you want. Yeah. Right. 
in ball screen defense, this is an interesting thing we do. So, well, let, let me get, take a step back to answer one more rotational question. If the ball goes to the corner and we execute that either short slide or long slide, if the ball comes right back to where it was, and we got a guy running away from that. Yeah. Anytime the ball goes from the corner to the wing, one of our guards has to take that. That's a standard rule. So that guard that was protecting the elbow, he's ready and anticipating that if the ball comes right back out of there to the wing, he's going to have that. Now that's his coverage. The only time the bottom guys take that is on entry. Now let's assume one of those top guys is guarding the ball. And let's say a ball screen comes up, a zone ball screen. We're actually going to hard hedge that guard to guard, except for the guard, the guy guarding the ball is actually going to go under. And it's sort of like we're going to execute a, a hedge switch. So they can't make a quick reversal guard to guard. So again, it's an aggressive zone. It's not a sit back and protect sort of a zone. It's more of an aggressive zone. So it, it's interesting, but our guards will hard hedge and then we will shoot under and, and then those two will execute a rotation. You sometimes see that in a, in a full court press, a run and jump where one guard will come up and on the pass, the other one will kind of shoot underneath him. We try to execute that in our zone. Hmm. I, I like that. That's got me thinking a lot about the way we play our zone. I, I like that stuff. Oh boy. Here you go. Um, <laughs> of the zones coach that you play, um, would you say you play the tandem the least amount? Uh, you, you the, play most them equally? Amount. the most, okay. the most amount you do. Okay. Of our zones. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. I, I honestly, I like to coach a one, three, one a lot. Yeah. And I think depending on years, depending on our personnel, I think we can, we've had years we've been really good in it. You know, but but I think the one I'm most comfortable using is our one one three. Now we do a lot of interesting stuff in baseline out of bounds, you know, and I and I know that you talked about maybe doing some baseline out of bounds on this segment offensively. To be honest, I think your listeners might benefit even more if they knew what we did on baseline out of bounds, because probably that's something that if you talk to some of our opposing coaches, <laughs> they might bring it up. Well, let's That's something we do. Let's uh, let's take that left turn and go right there. Then, what what exactly are you talking about? Well, I think we're as multiple there as we are in the quarter court, probably. And it's something we work on. Again, these aren't things we just sort of work on. I, I figured out a long time ago if we want to get any good at some of these things, it's just like offense, right? You know, just like shooting, we have to find time for it. You know, maybe not a lot of time, but we have to find time for it. You know, so we use a football mentality, you know, and I watch all these, how the game of football has changed from huddling up. No one huddles anymore. I mean, <laughs> NFL teams sometimes do, but college teams, I don't remember the last time, maybe Iowa still does. I don't know. I think Iowa might be the one team I've seen that actually still huddles and maybe the army and Navy do. I don't even know. I'm just guessing. <laughs> But, but it seems like no one huddles. They just stand out on the field and get a call from the coach, and then they go to where they need to go, and, and away they go. Um, we've sort of taken that mentality into our baseline out-of-bounds defense. So it's training our players that they go to where they're, they need to be, and I'll, I'll explain it here briefly, um, but they're looking at me the whole time. 
Okay, so their their body is positioned where they should be, but we play four different defenses on baseline out of bounds. And I've studied through scouting. I study is a pretty strong word. I mean, I don't maybe study, but I scouting our opponents. I know what their baseline out of bounds package is. I know what formations they're going to use. And one of the hard things I've found is, especially on a short notice, how do you get your players? Like, what do you work on from a scouting report preparation standpoint? How much time do you devote to showing your team sets, walking through it, and then not to mention their baseline out of bounds stuff? If you have back-to-back games, now I might know it, and my two assistants might know it, but but who cares if we can't get our players to know it? They're the ones, again, on the floor that have to execute quickly. So several years ago, I said, well, if I watch it, I don't need to show our players the baseline out-of-bounds offenses that our opponent's going to use. If I know them, we can change our defenses based on what I know they're going to run this when they're in that, or they're going to run one of three things when they're in a box set. And it's, it's going to be a screening action of some sort. You know, it's going to be one of these three screening actions. So the, the whole, going back to the football mentality, we don't show our defense until literally about, I try to time it about a second before the ref hands the ball to the guy taking it out. And so I'll call our defense really quickly and our guys learn from practice. We work on this diligently to to get to that defense like really quick. And sometimes they don't have to move. Sometimes they have to move slightly and sometimes they have to move a little more, but it, it, it allows us to sort of dictate the terms of baseline out of bounds a little bit. I have found that some teams will literally just send a guy back and throw the deep ball to him and then play from there because we do trap in some of our defenses and some coaches are a little hesitant. You know, Andy knew our our defenses, so he would put uh, his big kid in the corner (laughs) and throw it to him. And so we changed what we did against them because we couldn't trap him. You know, he's just too tall. He could throw right over top of us. Coach, one thing before, and I want to hear all this. While they're waiting for your call, where exactly do they go? Is it by position? Is it by, they have a responsible, a responsibility by position? Where do they go? Well, we typically will line up in our zone defensive positioning. Okay. Because we know we can transfer to man quickly out of that. Okay. Okay. Our four man's going to be on the ball. And when I say on the ball, on the ball, okay, face up. He's not protecting the rim. He's not protecting the corner. He's guarding. His job is to guard a seven-foot circle behind him, right behind him. That's all he's got to do is protect the area behind him. And so that's his mentality with his positioning and his hands. If they throw a bounce pass right under his, his arm, he hasn't done his job because that's really his only job. We will put our three guarding opposite block or opposite corner, depending on the formation of the offense. And his angle is not butt to baseline, not butt to elbow. He's literally at an angle where he is looking straight at the guy taking it out. 
And then our five man is protecting the front of the rim. And he is in a sort of a side angle. So he's got a little vision to what's happening in front of him, but yet he's, you know, but yet he's not so much that he can't see a lob coming. You know, we don't want his butt or his back to the ball because he won't see a lob coming to the front of the rim. Our two guard would be ball side, heels on the three-point line at an angle where butt, butt to baseline. If they're in a four across high and there's a player behind him, then he has to back up and his heels to three-point line might be wider. You know, he might be a step outside the three. He's got to have all four offensive players in his vision. If they're in a box set, he could be even tighter than heels on the three-point line. Anytime the ball goes the ball side corner, we're going to trap it with our four and our two. So we want our two there because he typically has more length than our one. It's a better trap. And so consequently, some teams never throw it to the corner because we get pretty good at trapping that. You know, So that eliminates that part of them. And then our one would be the quarterback. Again, we're going to take advantage of his communication, of his ability to be a quarterback. He's a quarterback of our defense. So he positions his body. We're not as picky how he positions his body. As long as he can see what's happening and be able to communicate it to the rest of his team. But that's where we would line up as they're looking at me. Okay. We can, we can transfer out of that into a one, three, one into our tandem one, one, three, um, or into straight man after they get it in. Okay. Or I could change that to a man and then they just find their man rather quickly, even if we're not matched up exactly like we need to be. And the reason I would change that is, you know, if a team starts to run stuff against our zone, then we would change to man because most zone out of bounds actions don't involve screening. They involve cutting. And if we switch to man to man, just cutting against a man to man out of bounds defense doesn't work very well. You know, it, it, that's when you want to screen like a pick the picker action you know, America's play is a screening <laughs> action against, well, you could run it against either, but a lot of teams run zone out of bounds plays with cutting, not so much screening. And that's where being able to change, you know, and it starts to mess with teams when you start to change your defenses. And I think more than anything, it just, we don't really uh, review baseline out of bounds with our team in scouting report. I do, our staff does. We try to work on, on that. So I know what defenses I want to play. You're watching their call and their alignment. And then as soon as you you see it, then you make your call. And I try to, and some refs, I know which refs, not all of them, but I know which refs are, you know, have places to go. (laughs) I've got to be quick on the trigger to, (laughs) And then I know other guys, you know, they're, they, they must be retired because they don't have anything to do. Yeah. You know, they're, they're going to give me time to get our defense in, but, but we do work on it. And, and sometimes believe it or not, it works even when we're changing defenses and the ball's already in the hands of the guy taking it out. Charlie, <laughs> you're, Charlie, you're really complicating the game. This used to be a lot simpler game when, you know, inbound just kind of, you know, you knew what they were going to be in and they knew what you were going to be because you called it and it was just see what happens. But, you know, I, I was talking to Derek beforehand, how you guys uniquely 
at least one of the games that I saw you play, you guys, you huddle when you're getting ready to run a baseline out of bounds, you huddle real quickly around your inbounder and make kind of a quiet call. And then the guys sprint to their spots and you're trying to disguise your call. And uh, I mean, I think that's really unique too, but that, that would give defenses fits really not knowing what you're going to do, especially if you're in the same alignment all the time. Speaking of officials, I'm afraid to do that at the high school level because I'm afraid an official would hand the ball to my inbounder while my guys are huddled around them because, like you said, they've got somewhere to go. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's a side note. Hopefully no officials are listening to this. But So, yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting stuff, good stuff. I have high school coaches oftentimes that call me and ask me more questions about it, and I'll tell them, you know, well, you know what? Come to a practice, and you give me the date you're coming – and we're going to work on it that week. I'll just devise that week's schedule so that I know we're going to spend the day that you're here right. working on that. And uh, I think coaches really appreciate that. And I would tell your listeners the same if coaches want to reach out to me. I love to open up our practices to high school coaches. Most of what I've learned, I've stolen from other people and I've learned at clinics and I've learned by listening to podcasts like your own. And so I think that's part of the game. It's the neat part of the game, you know, and so I'm more than happy to open up our practice to high school coaches. I'm, I'm not going to open it up to Andy or John Tharp or any of those guys, David Greer, <laughs> but I will open it up to you guys in the high school. Uh, I appreciate that. It's not that far. <laughs> not that far. We want to jump into our final segment, which is called our, our shot clock segment, where it's part of our campaign coach to, uh, to bring the shot clock to Michigan high school basketball. Uh, it's possible in, in 22, 23. So we're hoping the MHSA does the right thing. But so the deal is we've got four questions for you. Uh, you got 35 seconds to answer each one. Um, a horn may or may not go off at 35 seconds. Uh, we've got one. We just don't know if we're going to use it ever. But uh, anyway, so I'm going to, I'm going to start. This is based on your bio. Uh, rumor has it you were a pretty good golfer back in the day. So how often do you uh, still get out? And what is your favorite golf course in the greater Finley area? Well, I, you know, I just golfed actually last week. And that was only the second time I've golfed this summer. I, I like to get out at least a half a dozen times a year, not near enough. But I've got two high school age kids and an eight year old, and it's you know to make them a priority in the off season, it makes it tough to go on. Uh, but my favorite course, without a doubt, in the Finley area is the Finley Country Club. Okay. Uh, it's an old course. It's not overly long, but it's very challenging because they have a lot of trees and a lot of rough. I cannot play that course, by the way. Derek. <laughs> All right, Coach. My question is: so, so during your time as an assistant. Uh, which you, like you mentioned, you've been at Finley for a long time. Was there ever, was there ever a moment or, or a, a point in time where you seriously thought about leaving Finley to become a head coach somewhere else? I sure did. Uh, uh, well, not to become a head coach someplace else uh, necessarily, but to become an assistant at a division one school. Mm. Um, I nearly left to go to the university of Dayton back when Brian Gregory was the head coach. Mm. You know, my, my wife didn't think it was a good fit for me. And uh, she, she just felt like, you know what, I know you're not making as much money at Finley, but she knew me better than I knew myself. And she said, I, I just think you belong here. And I'm glad I did. It all worked out in the end. Yeah, it's worked out really well, it seems. I've got an ATO question for you. Um, if I'm coaching against you, are you more likely to run something in your playbook after an ATO? Or do you often draw up something entirely new using the full time and that media timeout? 
<laughs> well, again, Coach Chardo and I talk about this, and he's done a great job. Uh, you know, he will share with me. He's got an unbelievable playbook. <laughs> he, he's a guy that just studies the game. So he's got a booklet um, that we keep next to the bench. And uh, we try to rehearse plays we've used, but there have been occasions because you, you can't possibly – have a play for every single scenario. And that includes baseline out of bounds, sideline, you know, every situation. So I would say we'd like to use something we've used before, but maybe once a year, we, we have to design something that we've never used before. Cool. All right, coach, last question. If you could go back in time and write a, and write a letter to your younger self about the time you were getting into coaching, what advice would you give yourself? Hmm. Wow. I think uh, balance, you know, I think, uh, you know, when you're a younger coach, it's really all about basketball and uh, it's all about how I can move up, how I can, you know, make more money, how I can, it's just basketball, basketball, basketball. And I think that that's all good. I think you, you have to fill your, your bucket of knowledge um, you know, because ultimately that's going to be important. But I also do think that having balance in your life, as you get older, you look back and you realize that some of what makes the best coaches, the best coaches is because of their ability to relate to people, their ability to uh, talk to people, uh, their ability to meet people beyond coaching that sometimes can become boosters, sometimes can become supporters. It's, it's to find balance in your life because you know, you'll get married someday and you'll have kids and you'll want your own kids to have balance in their life. So I, I think that that's what I would want to tell myself is to never forget, even as an aspiring hungry coach, have balance. Great advice. Charlie, really appreciate it. Uh, I know it's been a busy day for you. Uh, this was uh, this was one I was looking forward to, and and I after I didn't know a, a ton about you before I uh, we have a common friend, and I got talking to him about you last week, and and the more I looked into you, and the more I studied you, I said, man, this is a guy we definitely have on. So it's been a pleasure having you, and uh, again, appreciate you taking time. Hey, you bet. Good luck, guys. Anything I can do to help. <laughs>